Hello and welcome to episode 46 of Sensational Shigig Live from Yancey Street. This week's Monday episode will start with the news featuring three different segments, of which we have several categories. The first being trailers. We'll be discussing the Multiverse of Madness teaser trailer that's been released online, and the Bat and Cat trailer for Matt Reeves' The Batman. The second segment is just straight news, in which we have a discussion about Dark Horse and Michael Keaton's Batman and what that all will mean. And the third segment is about just straight rumors. We have rumors revolving around the Fantastic Four and the Book of Boba Fett plot, which does come out this Wednesday. For the comic book picks this week, these are comics that came out the 21st and 22nd of December. We will focus mainly on the finale of Trial of Magneto, that would be issue 5, Catwoman Lonely City number 2, and Nubia and the Amazons number 3, among a few others to briefly cover. The comic book pull list for this week is covering DC Comics coming out tomorrow, the 28th of December, and Wednesday, the 29th. We'll cover a number of really exciting titles, including two that I'm including almost entirely just because of their speculative purposes. These are two issues that I think are going to end up being really high in value. I'm not super interested in them, but that is something I think worth mentioning. I'm sure a lot of you are here for the Hawkeye finale. That is episode six titled, So This Is Christmas. That will be covered in full with all of its comics references, Easter eggs, and what the skull could possibly mean for the future of the MCU. And finally, we're going to wrap up this week's Monday episode with the Marvel Comics March 22 solicitations. We did the DC solicitations for March 2022 last week. This week, we finally have the Marvel ones out, and there are a lot of new titles, a fair amount of ongoing titles, and just a general bit of excitement for the future of Marvel Comics. Before we get into the that, as usual, if you'd like to find me online for any reason, my Instagram is at Anna with the comics because my name is Anna and I do have quite a bit of comics. My Twitter is Savage She Geek because Sensational was too many letters. And I do have a website slash blog that is sensationalshegeek.weebly.com. On there, you can find highlights on the front page about characters such as Madeline Pryor, who is the Goblin Queen, Ileana Rasputin, who is Magic, and Clea, who is the new Sorcerer Supreme at Marvel come March 2022. So if you want to catch up on any of those characters, I definitely recommend it. I have a good bit of writing done on each of them, and that's all there on the front page of the blog. I also have pod notes for reading the podcast if you would like to do that instead of listening to me talk through it. Um, and for anybody who is, of course, hearing impaired who would like to still follow along with the podcast events of the week. Finally, I have links to everywhere that you can listen to this podcast, which is most podcast hosting apps, including YouTube, where I post all of my podcast videos into one playlist. And I also post action figure review videos. Recent videos include the 2020 HasLab Sentinel, the Marvel Legends Tigra slash Greer Grant, the Shadow Meowskulls from Fortnite, and disclaimer about that, I know nothing about Fortnite, and I also have a tour of our whole toy collection under Blacklight, 
just because that was fun. And I've recently done a video covering Captain Carter, who is definitely one of my top figures of the year. And my latest upload um, is a comparison between the Marvel Legends Psylocke slash Quanon uh, and the imported Moffix version, which was released fairly recently. And spoiler alert there, the Moffix Psylocke makes the Marvel Legend version look a bit like a Toy Biz figure from sometime in the early 90s. So check that out if you're into action figure collecting. I do have a podcast Patreon set up. It's on there under Sensational She Geek. It's set up for donations to support the podcast. I also have the Kofi Cash App, Venmo, and PayPal all linked on my link tree, which will appear at the bottom of every episode description. Um, I do have the annual hosting fees for my podcast coming up for Podbean. Um, if anybody would like to donate towards that, anything that comes through any of those links on um, my link tree all goes directly to the podcast because that is what a lot of my extra money goes towards keeping this up and running. Um, so if you would like to support the podcast in that sense at all, kind of help take some of that load off of our shoulders, I would definitely appreciate that. Um, uh, finally, I do have a favorite Redbubble sticker design uh, up for sale. It says, A Woman's Place is in the Comic Shop. It is on Redbubble, so you can get that as a sticker, as a shirt, as a mug, a print, whatever else you can want under the sun, practically. I have a few other designs on there. You can find them under She Geek Shop. As we start off the episode with the news this week, I do have a few reminders. First off, as I said already, Book of Boba does start this Wednesday the 29th. That is the next big Star Wars event for anybody who is interested in that kind of topic. I do have a little bit to discuss about rumors involving Book of Boba once we get down to the rumors portion of the news segment. So stick around to hear what that is. You can make your decision on whether that weirdness is going to be legit or not. Or you can just wait and see on Wednesday. No Way Home podcast has been... I, I, I am aware that last week's podcast, I said there was no reason it won't be up by Thursday, and, and it was not up by... It's still not up. But uh, I, I, I have an excuse for that. <laughs> it's because I want my husband to be a part of this. He is a lifelong Spider-Man fan and reader, the spider pro of this household, you might say. So I want, uh, I'm going to be hopefully doing that tonight with him because uh, he works a lot more than I do with his traditional job. Uh, but that podcast episode will be covering Spider-Man news, of which there is a fair amount. <laughs> the basic plot of the movie, the good, the bad, the Easter eggs, the comic references, and the future of the Spider-Man franchise. We also have a Best in Comics 2021 episode coming on the first of the year. It's going to be covering, and I worked on this a lot today, so I'm really excited for this one. It's going to be covering the best series, the best of Future State, best writers, best interior artists, cover artists, single issues, excellent starts to series, rising stars in the industry, and characters to watch in 2022. And of course... The Disappointments of 2021. Finally, I do have a listener poll for the end of year 2021 that I will be posting the same time that I'll be posting that Best in Comics um, special edition podcast. So keep your eyes open for that. It's going to be all over my blog, all over my social media. Um, just asking general things like how often do you listen? 
uh, where do you listen on, what segments do you go for, etc. Things like that, just so I get a little bit more honing down onto making this podcast not just what I would like to do, but also what people would like to hear me do. And just as I mentioned earlier, um, the annual fees for this podcast hosting are coming up. So if you'd like to donate to any of that, towards any of that, all of the links to anywhere that you can donate to the podcast are linked at the bottom of each episode uh, for the link tree there. Now, starting in at the teasers, or rather trailers, section of the news, we're going to talk about the Multiverse of Madness teaser that was released and that had followed No Way Home, but it is released online now, and we're going to talk about the teaser for The Batman released today titled The Bat and the Cat, uh, kind of focusing on the two of them and their role in the movie. So starting off with Multiverse of Madness, uh, also worth noting, a poster did debut for the movie as well. Um, my best guess of what it is showing us is two versions of Strange and two versions of Wanda. So main takeaways from this teaser, it does look to be connecting very strongly to Marvel's What If animated series. It's going to be connecting that to the MCU a lot more directly with main points here being that Strange Supreme is going to be heavily, heavily featured, perhaps as the main villain of the movie. We met this version of Steven in the What If series where he loses Christine instead of the use of his hands. She was his love. In this world, they never split up, so she is with him that night that he uh, goes and has his car crash and she is the sole victim, leaving Steven surviving to search the universe for a way to bring her back. He eventually absorbs so much power in his search that he becomes physically and arguably mentally twisted version of his regular self. But in the end, he messes up with time so much that he is doomed to be forever the sole inhabitant of his own universe, destroyed in his attempts to save Christine. That didn't make sense. Just Google it or watch the episode. It'll make a lot more sense that way. So he comes onto the screen. We see him in the trailer with the line, the greatest threat to our universe is you. Honestly, I'm not sure if that's said by Supreme Strange or our Strange or another Strange altogether, for all we know. Um, but it is kind of fitting to have it there when he first appears. Later in the trailer, we see a distant figure that would appear to be Strange himself using magic that appears to be much more like Wanda's chaos magic. So my guess here is that this is S Strange Supreme in that scene and I think it's him again later on when we see uh, another strange to sh shoot two snakes from his hands in a burst of like not really gold and not really red but kind of like a strawberry gold magic spurt. spurt. Another way that this is going to be connecting to what if is the dark magic tearing apart the universe, which Steven sees for the first time when he goes outside the sanctum, much like in the what if episode. After we hear the voiceover about how he didn't mean for any of this to happen, it looks like a lot of the universe is kind of dissolving with that dark magic dust. We see Wanda first from this trailer in an orchard. It does look like it's probably just apple trees to me, which I mentioned because there is an article out there that theorizes these are Wondegore Everblooms. Now, Wondegore Everblooms in the comic are Wanda's favorite flower, and they were a gift to her from Agatha Harkness, who we of course now have in the MCU, uh, on her wedding to the Vision. Uh, while that's a nice theory, <laughs> Those are apple trees, my bro my, my man. 
Um, those are apple trees. <laughs> it's an orchard, not a flower garden, but good try. And without even checking, I can tell you for a fact that Wondagore Everblooms look nothing like blooming apple trees. And I, I did read Tom King's Vision, which is where that comes from, but I feel like you could know that without having read it. And it's kind of, um, it's just kind of definitely apple trees in that sequence. So that, that theorizer can take a seat. It's just apple trees. Some kind of fruit. Could be cherries. I don't know. But it's just, it's fruit trees. Um, it's also a different location than we saw her at in the finale of WandaVision, which again, I want to point out was a total callback to the Incredible Hulk's ending as a major beginning slash ending point of an era in the MCU. This location is bigger and we see a lot more than just the orchard on the property uh, and I even see some little sheeps in the background. So I imagine this is where she's kind of settled after having taken some time to explore and come to some conclusions. I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. When Steven approaches her, Wanda is surprised to find out that he isn't there to chastise her in any way over the whole Westfield situation, as we saw in WandaVision. Instead, he asks her what she knows about the multiverse. We know that she's been messing with the multiverse in at least some way, because she's been searching for a world where her children, her sons, are real and could survive without magic making them a thing. Wanda will be, I have no doubt, a large part of this movie, and we see her new look in this teaser, what is probably the closest we'll be able to get to a classic comic Scarlet Witch look and have it be able to pass still as realistic in the MCU. It's very similar to her look at the end of WandaVision, but with long sleeves instead of sleeveless, and I don't want to say, I, I kind of, I, I don't, I do want to say that it's a, a bit of a deeper kind of more clear red and possibly a bit more dramatic on the detailing. At one point in the trailer, we see Wong strung up by his wrists and the keen observer can see that he's being held by what appears to be red energy bonds, exactly Wanda's type of magic. Does this mean that Wanda we know, the Wanda we know, will be the main villain of the movie again? No, there's probably a lot set up to mislead us in this teaser, or at least I genuinely hope that there is. We also see Wanda a couple of times throughout the trailer. She's going around with America, powering up her hands, etc, etc. And yes, of course, Wong will be back. He is played by the good old reliable Benedict Wong. It's fairly easy to remember that one. It's difficult to say quite yet if Wong is still going to be the Sorcerer Supreme when this movie takes place. He obviously was in no way home as such, though he did not actually play a very large role. He will no doubt have more going on in Multiverse of Madness, whether he is Sorcerer Supreme or not. Another obvious but exciting return is Mordo, played by Chutel A4. Somebody please tell me how to say his name so I can stop making a fool of myself. But he's played by that guy. Uh, who's wearing a bit more detailed version of what we last saw him in, if I'm not mistaken, but he has also grown out his hair to about chest length locks, which look, which looks, oh dear, which looks really, really awesome on him. We know that Mordo's big thing in the MCU, as we saw in the first Doctor Strange movie, is that there are too many sorcerers and he wants to make there be less 
by whatever means. Now, the sequel is bringing in a fair amount of new sorcerers, not just Wanda, but most likely Agatha, some from other dimensions, and hopefully Clea too. Plenty of people from order to make suffer should he get that far in his quest, and assuming that this will be still his ultimate goal. I'm also assuming that there's going to be a battle at Kamartage, which is the location where the sorcerers like Strange were trained, because we do see it several times in the trailer, and a, a few different team members appear there, including Strange, Wong, and America. It is also potentially there that the Scarlet Witch is doing her magic when we kind of see her in her full Scarlet Witch outfit. And we get our first shots of America Chavez in what is likely going to be her outfit for the movie. It's a somewhat light callback to her denim jacket that she wears slash wore for a time slash still wears at times. She is played by Zochi Gomez and is a fan favorite queer Latinx badass hero from the comics. Unfortunately, her stellar dimension hopping utopian origin was recently retconned to make her in my opinion, a confused little girl who forgets she came from New Jersey or some dumb shit like that, which I sadly would bet this it's that's probably going to be the where they're going to go in the movie as well, if I had to guess. The series that made this, um, in my opinion, horrendous retcon is on my biggest disappointments of 2021 list, which you'll be able to hear on my Best in Comics 2021 special edition podcast. Uh, the weekend after the weekend of the first the, of the year in 2022. Now, America in the comics creates portals even to other universes, so you can see why she's going to be a very interesting asset to have in this particular movie. Rintra is also confirmed in this teaser. He is a Minotaur who becomes Steven's protege at certain points in comic book history. Uh, we see him at the location where we saw Scarlet Witch hovering magically earlier, what appears to be Kamartage. He is fighting, but it's hard to say on which side or who the other parties even are. There's a brief clip of a figure stand uh, with a ponytail. He's falling through what might be some portals after total dissection of that scene. It would seem, I, I think that's... Uh, a version of Strange, though it's hard to put my finger on which. I had already talked about Defender Strange on another episode, which was a spoiler from the Hasbro Marvel Legends toy line for this movie, and how he is either A, a version of Steven from a universe where he's on the Defenders team, or B, a look he takes on during this movie. Either way, this would seem to be him a man bun going into a ponytail, a headband of some sort, and appear appears to be more red-colored robes. And finally, we have Shuma Gorath. The classic comics villain, big old tentacly boy, uh, throws a bus in the air. He's gonna be in this movie for some amount of time. I don't care how long, I'm just happy to see him. We also see a scene, possibly dream sequence, Ultra, it's probably, I don't know, it's it's some, it's some a scene where Steven appears to be at Christine's wedding, but not as a groom. There's also a purple and pink realm with some kind of floating platform that looks like either a royal area or a major multiversal spot of some sort. I don't know, but Strange floats through it with what appears to be a submarine doorway with America and uh, likely Wanda behind him. There is also someone who appears to be strange, cuffed, but in a deep royal blue, defending himself from Mordo. Is it possible that this is the strange 
the blue outfit that Strange takes on to hide his identity in the comics for a time. The first time that appears in comics is 1969, so fairly early on there, and he is living with Clea at that time. So that could be another version of him, that could be him at a certain point in the movie, or it could just be him wearing blue. <laughs> in any case, Multiverse of Madness doesn't come out until May 6th, 2022, so that is a good chunk of time away, so they have plenty of time for teasing things for us between now and then. We also know that we have at least one Marvel Disney Plus show coming before then, likely Moon Knight, so we'll have that to feed off of as well. The Bat and the Cat, the new teaser for Matt Reeves' The Batman coming out in 2022. This trailer, it really does make this look freaking awesome. There was not a whole lot of new footage by any means, but there were a few new lines, including one about Selina having a thing for strays, which of course is why she's initially so attracted to Batman slash Bruce. This is definitely going to be about taking down the Wayne family legacy for some legendary BS they did in their past or perhaps still do. It's some secret that Alfred apparently knows about as we see Bruce confronting him on why he was never told whatever this thing is. We also have an official synopsis. This is a bit long, but it has all the actor names and all the character names, so hold tight for the info. It says, from Warner Brothers Pictures comes Matt Reeves' The Batman, starring Robert Pattinson in the dual role of Gotham City's vigilante detective and his alter ego, reclusive billionaire Bruce Wayne. Two years of stalking the streets as Batman, Robert Pattinson, striking fear into the hearts of criminals, has led Bruce Wayne into the shadow of Gotham City. With only a few trusted allies, Alfred Pennyworth, Andy Serkis, Lieutenant James Gordon, Jeffrey Wright, amongst the city's corrupt network of officials and high-profile figures, the lone vigilante has established himself as the sole embodiment of vengeance amongst his fellow citizens. When a killer targets Gotham's elite with a series of sadistic machinations, a trial of trail of cryptic clues sends the world's greatest detective on an investigation into the underworld, where he encounters such characters as Selina Kyle, aka Catwoman, Zoe Kravitz, Oswald Kalapot, aka The Penguin, Colin Farrell, Carmine Falcone, John Turturro, Turturro, and Edward Nashton, aka The Riddler, Paul Dano. As the evidence begins to lead closer to home and the scale of the per perpetrator's plans become clear, Batman must forge new relationships, unmask the culprit, and bring justice to the abuse of power and corruption that has long plagued Gotham City. Starring alongside Pattinson as Gotham's famous infamous cast of characters are Zoe Kravitz as Selina Kyle, Paul Dano as Nash Edward Nashton, Jeffrey Wright as the GCPD's James Gordon, John Turturro, as Carmine Falcone, Peter Skarsgård as, as Gotham DA Gil Coulson, Jamie Lawson as mayoral candidate Bella Rial, and Andy Serkis as Alfred and Colin Farrell as Oswald Cobblepot. We knew most of that, but it's nice to have it all made official. In any case, this is probably going to be a lot of people's biggest movie of 2022. My, my, if I was to predict top three was probably going to be this, Multiverse of Madness, and Love and Thunder. But that is all in the future, and um, I'll, we'll, we'll wait and see. We'll wait and see how it all goes. I think it's going to be great, though. Not going to lie. Next, we have straight news. We have two points here. The first is Dark Horse, the publishing conglomerate, has been 
purchased. They've been purchased by Embracer Group, who is a Swedish video game conglomerate, closing the deal in early 2022. The purchase also includes Dark Horse Entertainment, which oversees the film and television side of the business, and its merchandising arm called Things From Another World. Dark Horse CEO Mike Richardson, who founded the company in 1986, is going to remain at the helm along with current management. Dark Horse itself has 181 employees across its offices in Milwaukee, Oregon, and Los Angeles. They will be joining Embracer's 9,000 employees globally. From CEO Mike Richardson, we have a quote. The synergies that exist with the Embracer network of companies promise new, exciting new opportunities, not only for Dark Horse, but also for the creators and companies we work with. I've had a number of compelling conversations with Embracer CEO Lars Winchfors, and I'm very impressed with him and what he's, he and his teams have built. I have to say, the future of our company has never looked brighter. Embracer themselves has already come out to announce that they now have 159 of 170 properties that Dark Horse owns yet to be optioned for TV or film, and they do have plans to change that. Something aside from film and TV, though, Embracer is huge into video games as it was their initial product. What does that mean? Well, there will be a Hellboy game or two in our future for sure. Kind of surprising honestly that we haven't had one already but with a game company purchasing his publishing company you can pretty much see that being a guaranteed other things that might come out of this games from other comics such as the umbrella academy that'd be pretty sick and also the possibility of game titles getting comic book spin-offs that's another thing in the realm of the possibles after this purchase and hopefully everyone getting paid well while they do it yet to be determined, but we're hoping that will be good. <laughs> uh, speaking of money, they did not announce how much this deal was or any of the financial details, which makes me even more curious. The second bit of news news that we have is news involving Michael Keaton's Batman and what it means. What we have here today for you is that Keaton's Batman is apparently going to be appearing in well, as Batman, in the HBO Max Batgirl movie starring Leslie Grace. The theory that I have, we have in this household, that they're kind of cutting out the Snyderverse and going back to the, what you might call, original DC movie universe, is looking to be a lot more viable after this news. Sasha Kelly's Supergirl could easily be the daughter of the Christopher Reeves Superman, Michael Keaton has always been Batman in that universe, maybe settled down with Selina at the end, etc. Uh, if Selina, if she appeared in this movie, I would be over the moon. Uh, or the Flash movie, either one. Be down for that, totally. Uh, however, we also have to remember that J.K. Simmons is returning in this movie to portray Jim Gordon as he did in the Snyderverse, so... Meh. Um, I, I don't think it's too far of a stretch all in all, to assume that the Batfleck will be dying permanently in the Flash movie, especially after this news. He, ha he, he had to go back to rehab and just, you get the feeling that after a while, maybe Warner is a bit over it, <laughs> especially if they're scheduling ongoing projects for Keaton's Batman. That doesn't look good for Affleck. 
What we also know about the movie, as we've talked about before, is that Brendan Fraser is playing the villain Firefly, my my theory, being that he's passing the torch down to a younger female version to take over the name. And this movie is scheduled for 2022, with The Flash coming out November 4th, 2022. So I don't think it's going to be too much of a stretch to assume that they'll be connected. They're going to push out Batflick and bring back Keaton Batman, and that's just going to be our new status quo. I don't have a problem with that. To wrap up the news, we'll discuss the rumors. We have two, one being Fantastic Four and one being Boba Fett related. Starting off with the Fantastic Four rumor, the news today, well, the rumor today is that a member of the Fantastic Four will be introduced in Multiverse of Madness. This is a multi-part rumor. We'll get to the other parts in a second. But as for this first part, it is specifically that a member of the Illuminati, who is also in the Fantastic Four, has joined the cast. Uh, this I do believe because we've been hearing so much about how many reshoots they've been doing for Multiverse of Madness. They've been going real hardcore at the reshoots for a while now. So I definitely think they're packing it with as much as they can. Additionally, a member of the Fantastic Four was allegedly cast this month, possibly related. Daisy Ridley was seen at the Marvel offices recently just putting that out there with the boba rumors uh which i'll get to in a second and even without it's looking like disney kind of owes daisy ridley a win <laughs> a solid win after getting kelly matrie kelly marie tran back by making her a literal disney animated princess thank you very much uh, it does follow suit that they do something similar for Daisy Ridley. Although that being said, I don't think she'd want to be back in the middle of a longtime male-dominated fandom. Again, it didn't go too well for her last time, so I'm not sure. I, I think she'd be pretty wary of putting herself in that position again. However, money. Uh, it's the mouse. They have money. If I am Anna with the comics, they are the mouse of the money. <laughs> uh, and all of that being said, I am still betting on Marvel and Disney to be doing a female Illuminati group for the MCU. And here's why. We already know we're getting a lot more women of Wakanda in their own shows and in sequels and things. We're getting Xyling taking over the Ten Rings. Namor and the Atlanteans are going to pop up at some point, and I have no doubt there's going to be a female or two involved there. And now it would appear as if the first Fantastic Four member to be cast could be Sue Storm. Illuminati rumors have been all over the MCU for years now, as well as A-Force team movie rumors. All of this, to me, adds up to a female Illuminati boom. In any case, the Fantastic Four project is supposed to be helmed by John Watts of the current Spider-Man trilogy. Hopefully a good sign. Um, and my last uh, reason for, for thinking that this is not going to be Reed Richards, um, everybody expects this to be Reed Richards. Everybody met the other members through him. He's the conjoining point. It's always been that way. I think it would be a nice change of pace to see someone else premiere the team, the Fantastic Four, you know? Let's, let's do it a different way. Now those dang 
smelly Boba Fett rumors. <laughs> this is not something I'm really happy about, but I, I can't possibly believe this being legit because the rumors are basically saying that Boba Fett and Fennec, Fennec Shand end up going to that like intersection of realities place that they had in the Rebel show and they end up fighting various versions of Siths from across the multiverse. Um, and apparently it's meant to retcon most of the sequel trilogy, Nixing Ray, the clone stuff, all of it. Again, I have a really, really hard time seeing this as being in any way legit. I get why people would fall for it, I do, because this is exactly the Disney version of releasing the Snyder Cut after years of being harassed by those fans. Star Wars fans are known for being the actual worst, so this could totally be Disney bending the knee to mindless clamoring outside their door. But literally everything about the trailers that we've seen so far paints the show to be a show about taking over the underworld and exploration of what all of that entails. Nothing crazy or multiversal like these rumors, but I, I guess we're just going to have to wait and see when it premieres on Wednesday. For comic book picks this week, these are comics that came out December 21st and 22nd. We're going to be most, mostly focusing on X-Men, Trial of Magneto number 5, uh, Catwoman, Lonely City number 2, and Nubia and the Amazons number 3. Briefly mentioning One Dark Knight number 1, Porcelain number 5, Wonder Woman Evolution number 2, Black Cat number 2, Bat Cat number 9, and Catwoman number 38. Starting off though with X-Men Trial of Magneto number 5. This was by Leo Williams and Lucas Wernick. I do believe that the final bits of the series, very final bits, did save it more or less. After Wanda is herself again, it's revealed to the crowd that her killer was Toad and he is taken to the pit. Afterwards, Wanda teams up with a few mutants to cast a spell like no other, one leaving Cerebro to access all kinds of mutant kind. Wow, those words didn't make sense. One allowing Cerebro to access all of mutant kind, no matter where they are from, when they died, and when they were last alive. Mutants who died on Genosha, who lived and died before Cerebro, could ever log their minds, and who hadn't even had their X-gene triggered before their death. Now they are all viable entries for the resurrection queue. This is universe-changing for mutants who have long since written off their lost loved ones as gone forever, just another lost member of the constant battle for mutant kind's survival. But it's all different now. Anyone with the X-Gene ever can be resurrected. And who is the first? Appropriately, John Proudstar, Thunderbird. This is a big deal that he's back, because he was one of the X-Men on the team in Giant Size X-Men number one. But he died shortly after and hasn't been back in the comics since. It's a legendary wrongdoing of the old writers that has finally been righted at last. But later, we do find out that Toad was an actual patsy for Wanda and Magneto, who teamed up to set literally all of this up. They knew Wanda would have to look murdered for the mutants to take enough pity on her after everything to even try bringing her back. Wanda faked the murder scene using glamours and enchantments, making sure Magneto knew to find the body for them. Why all of this? Because Wanda knew that she could make that spell happen for the mutants to be viable for resurrection no matter when they came from. But she also knew that her reputation, with that, they would have rejected that gift without hesitation. She needed to look like a piteous character, wounded and with a broken wing after her apparent death. 
After all this, the issue ends with Exodus gathering the Krakoan children around a fire once again. We've seen this twice before in Hickman's era, once to tell Magneto's glory, and once to tell of the betrayer, Wanda Maximoff, destroying a million mutants. So it's painfully appropriate this issue ends with Exodus telling them about her again, but how she went from the pretender to the redeemer. She even joins in on the storytelling. With that, I would not be surprised to see Wanda take on a much larger role in 2022. Catwoman Lonely City number two was just as fantastic, if not better, than the first. Uh, we had a fantastic montage of aged Selena living and working out with an aged killer croc, and it was probably the best thing I've seen a whole month. She meets with an old costume maker and takes her adult son as her helper. He had a crush on her as a kid, of course. She fakes it as a royal to get into a hotel and then meets the Riddler in a bar. He's got a teenage daughter now and confirms he was doing a lot of cocaine back in the day and that's why he had that wacky skin tight suit. There's another excellent montage of them having drinks and reminiscing at the bar. We get a flashback of Catwoman and Batman early on which is very sweet because they have her dressed in the live action 60s series suit. In modern times, she finds and steals a Green Lantern ring, and it transports her out of her sticky situation. Riddler and his teenage daughter join their group. She's mixed Latinx, and Selena chats with her in Spanish, which is a cute moment. There's also an interesting duality between the two childhood Catwoman fans who had posters in their rooms growing up. The boys was a sex symbol style in the purple suit. The girls had hers in the Jim Lee suit with goggles, more of an action style poster. Their next job is from a secret wealthy client and it takes place at Ace Chemicals. It goes a bit sideways, but they manage to pull it off together as a team. Then they arrive at their destination, Brazil, and meet their current patron, Poison Ivy. I don't know why I said patron like that. Patron? Patron Poison Ivy. She's thick with two C's in this. I like it. Uh, and she seems to run some kind of almost militarized uh, business out of coffee bean sales. We learned that Harley also died on Fool's Night and Ivy came here after. Their deal was if Selena gets the chemicals for her to destroy, she'll go back to Gotham with them. So that's where we leave the episode. The episode. The issue. We also have uh, Barbara Gordon is racing off uh, for mayor against Two-Face, who is your classic right-wing nut job. Um, and Barbara's just trying to make things somewhat decent for actual Gotham citizens. So, um, very, very strong parallel to our own world. And unfortunately, book three does not come out until March. I'm not going to lie to you, man. It is going to be worth the wait. Based on this issue, it will be 100% worth the wait. Nubia and the Amazons number three was just as good as the first two issues. Actually, I would say this was slightly better because this issue felt a lot more in line with the rest of what they're kind of working on in the Wonder Woman realm at DC and getting everybody kind of prepped for trial of the Amazons. In this issue, there is discord being sown amongst the Amazons over the way Themyscira is being run by Nubia. They are accepting of all who come out of the well, but fairly slow moving to replace a new guard at Doom's doorway, which is, of course, connecting them to Hades. However, as a former guard of the gay herself, Nubia would be the one to know how to best treat it, so that's where the argument comes from. 
Nubia is with Io, her lover, when we see her in this issue, and she's explaining to her what's going on in her head. She's having a minor identity crisis, basically, and in her own words, because she spent so much of her existence guarding Doom's doorway, being nothing other than a warrior. Now she is queen, and she has to adjust. When a new Amazon is taken ill, Nubia stays with her, and they discover that she's actually an oracle. Then Andromeda is tricked by Medusa and sent back to Themyscira as a trap. She wants her head back, Medusa's head, and is already turning guards to stone in search of it. Immediately, Nubia regrets ever leaving her post at Doom's doorway. My one critique here is that the art falters a little bit in my opinion, but I am working on getting used to it. I think that it's honestly that I tend to have issues when there's more than one or two cooks in the kitchen when it comes to comic book interior art. Here we have a penciler, an inker, and a colorist. That's a lot of people trying to make one cohesive vision on paper. It doesn't always translate as well as if they gave the time and funding to have one artist be able to see it all through, but still really enjoyed this issue. One Dark Knight number one is a Black Label series coming from Jock. Apparently that's what they call him. Makes me not like him just because jock. <laughs> it was good. It was not world-changing good. My favorite part was the return of the classic bat villain method. That the guy's initials are E-M-P and that's where he gets his name from. It's a classic trope for bat villains like Victor Freeze or Harleen Quinzel. Their real name takes a part determining their villain name. I didn't realize how much I missed that. Love to see it return in some form again. In Porcelain number five, the series wrapped up with the girl's cat helping to save her and she's able to beat the doll maker. When she takes Axel to leave in the end, Axel reveals that his arms are already turned to doll parts and he cannot leave the dollhouse ever again. So the girl escapes alone and in the epilogue we learn that she's gone to the city to study art and is entering a sculpture in the city art competition. In Wonder Woman Evolution number two, a great part of the issue seemed to be a bit wasted if I'm not, if I'm being honest. Um, Diana did get her new look and she finally met the judges who are going to be judging her. People are mad that she isn't pretty enough in this, <laughs> which is always a great laughing point. Um, and also, let's see you do better, bro. <laughs> Black Panther number two, my main takeaway with this, besides it's the T'Challa warning and letting go all of his undercover agents, does Shuri fly? Does she have powers? Because it, it shows her flying off as like a flock of ravens. I know the term is it a flock. But if somebody could clarify that for me, I genuinely don't know what that was about. Batcat number nine, I'm sorry, but the Liam Sharp art just does not fit in the slightest bit throws me off big time and i really didn't feel like this issue moved really anywhere <laughs> finally catwoman number 38 uh there was no poison ivy in this issue as was solicited so a disappointment there but on the upside we had caspar wingard w-i-j-n-g-a-a-r-d on the interiors who is a fantastic uh artist who is actually going to be on one of my uh up-and-coming names lists in my best of 2021 comics lists coming out this weekend moving on to comic book polls this week 
This is not a very big week for indies, admittedly, and these are titles coming out for DC Comics tomorrow on the 28th and Wednesday the 29th. I have two titles that are purely speculative. Uh, I have no interest in the series Stray Dogs, but it was hugely popular and became very valuable in 2020-2021. So coming out this week, we have Stray Dogs Dog Days number one of two, created by the same team, of course, as a follow-up. Chances are this one is going to be equally popular, though if audiences have caught on, value won't be quite as high. Uh, However, there is an unbelievable truly unbelievable amount of variant covers for this issue so the more rare ones you can find i can bet your butt you're gonna make some money on your investment the other speculative comic that i have here is not necessarily timeless number one it is a specific cover of timeless number one the huberto ramos miss minutes variant as that will be the first cover appearance of miss minutes from the loki show she will also have her first uh, comic book appearance on the interior. Um, so this is probably going to be one that goes up in value at least a little bit. It is a one shot prepping us for the next year or so of Marvel Comics to be written by Jed McKay with art by Kev Walker, Greg Land, and Mark Bagley. Far too many men on board for my taste. Where are the women? Waiting for an answer. <laughs> We do have covers by Peach Ramoko, Humberto Ramos, Juan Cabal, Patrick Gleason, Don Heck, Carmen Carnero, R.B. Silva, Joshua Casara, Ivan Coelho, and Natasha Bustos. Swamp Thing, Green Hell, number one of three, is by Jeff Lemire and Doug Monk, coming from DC Black Label. This is one that's going to be a classic DC horror comic, kind of like Reptilian. This one's going to be magazine format and three issues, though. It says, The Earth is all but done. The last remnants of humanity cling to a mountaintop island lost in endless flood water. The parliaments of the green, the red, and the rot all agree. It's time to wipe the slate clean and start the cycle of life over again. And to do so, they've united their powers to summon an avatar, one of the most horrific monsters to ever stalk the surface of this forsaken planet. Against a creature like that, there can be no fighting back, unless you have a soldier who understands the enemy, someone who has used its tactics before, someone like Alec Holland. Of course, it would help if Alec Holland hadn't been dead for decades. I think that sounds cool. We have Devil's Reign number two of six coming from Chip Zarsky and Marco Cicchetto, where Wilson Fisk has once again criminalized superhero activity, uh, and that never goes well. Human Target number three of 12 has a fantastic art germ variant featuring the character Ice. This is by Tom King and Greg Smallwood and does come from DC Black Label. The Death of Doctor Strange number four of five is written by Jed McKay with art by Lee Garbett. It does say that it's going to be announcing the new Sorcerer Supreme here, which supposedly will be filling up the cover, but we know it's just strange on the cover, so a little bit of confusion when the Sorcerer Supreme has been announced as being Clea. Mirka Andolfo's Sweet Paprika number six of 12. This is the end of a story arc, which does make sense if they're going to be cutting it in half. Finally, we have Harley Quinn number 10 by Stephanie Phillips with Riley Rossmo and Laura Braga on art. Not sure which artist because they had a terrible time of keeping track of that on their own website. This is one that's going to have her on date night with Harley with Poison Ivy. So hopefully we'll get a final hashtag Poison Ivy watch of 2021 after this issue. 
for my Hawkeye finale discussion, which we will do now. I just would like to preface this with... I did not feel like watching this episode a second time. Take that how you will, um, but I'll just be going, because of that, I'll be going over what I'm calling the hits. There's a lot of details that are not important. These are the important ones. The episode is titled, So This Is Christmas. The title, of course, being a reference to John Lennon's Christmas song, Happy Christmas, War Is Over. We start off, as you might have suspected after the last episode, with Kingpin. He's in his white suit jacket, but underneath is this ridiculous Hawaiian shirt that is definitely a direct reference to what he wore in Amazing Spider-Man Family Business in 2014, which was by James Robinson, Mark Waid, and Gabriel Delato, who is an art god. It's also funny because fans who are only familiar with Fisk from the Netflix show will see this very bright entrance of his as being in high contrast to how we always saw him on the Netflix Daredevil show, staring at a blank white canvas and whatnot. After the events of No Way Home, um, I do think it's pretty safe to say that the Netflix shows are on the, what you might call, sacred timeline, as they called it in Loki, and therefore were never added to this universe and never had to be taken away then. Uh, we're, we're only just now seeing the two worlds crossing over. They were always there, though. On that note, um, what do you think Kingpin had over Tony Stark that he never bothered him as Iron Man? We've come up with some very dark but honestly realistic theories involving his name on certain lists of people who've been on a certain person's plane to a certain secret island destination. Let's be honest, Tony Stark would 100% be on that list, especially pre-sobering up. Tony Dalton was a surprise favorite in this episode as Jack Duquesne. He finally had his moment and I was pleasantly surprised to see that we will uh, most likely be seeing him in the MCU again, maybe even as an Avenger. I really thought he was going to be just a throwaway character, maybe just a loose reference to the comic book Swordsman, but seeing them have him in the full-on fighting people with his sword and do really, really honestly impressively well with it makes me second guess that majorly. Now I am hoping we see him again, and as a bonus fun fact, he does fall in love with and have a son with Mantis in the comics, so that's just, that's a possibility still, just saying. On the Maya and Kazi sides of things, they do hash it out in a fight. Basically, he was jealous that she took over things from her dad and she ends up stabbing him the end. He does wear a kind of trench coat thing in this episode, which could be a callback to him being named after the clown from the Fraction Aha Hawkeye run, but we'll never get anything more from him than that. Yelena and Clint also fight it out, with him mostly doing defense, and he more or less gets across to her what happened to Natasha. She winds up crying and leaves him be. No dead Clint. One disappointment from all the fighting, I have to say, was that uh, though they had a montage of them making trick arrows for the fight, pretty much all of Kate's arrows get stepped on ASAP, and I don't think Clint uses many of his either, so whatever with that. Uh, and we do wind up seeing Kingpin, we, we wind up with Kingpin chasing down Kate, her mother having been threatened by him for trying to leave his business, basically. He takes an arrow to the chest, which a lot of watchers seem confused by. No, he does not have superpowers. 
It's just like he is in the comics. He is tough as tar, and it takes more than one attempt in a row to kill him. That's it. Fantastically unbeatable mortal human character. That is why he's so terrifying. He's like this, and he doesn't even have powers. Kate is definitely losing the battle to Fisk until her mom literally hits him with a car through a building. It does seem pretty brutal, but he lives. Of course he does. We've already been over this. There's more battling it out after that, and after taking him down another time, he still winds up missing when the building is searched later. Where does he wind up? stumbling down the road now until he's caught in the headlights of none other than Maya Lopez. He knows she has, well, he knows she knows that he had her father killed, of course, and he's not stupid enough to think that she's here for anything but revenge. Still, he does try to reason with her a bit weakly for a moment as she raises her gun to his head and the camera pans up as we hear her fire two shots. Now, children... What is the number one rule of superhero movies? Say it with me now. No body, no death. Did we see a dead body for Fisk? No. Therefore, he's not dead. We will be seeing him again. Probably in the Echo Show. And if you think I am stretching it, that he couldn't have survived, then I would like to direct you to the Daredevil storyline where we first see Maya in the comics. At the end of everything, when she finally has her chance to get revenge to the correct killer, Fisk, she shoots him in the face and he lives, but he is left completely blinded for a time. Ergo, this is the obvious next step to take with Fisk. No body, no death. Always remember that. Um, we, uh, do, we do get a confirmation we do get a confirmation, a little bit, kind of, twist, kind of get a confirmation that Miss, what is her name, Laura Borden? Clint's wife was Mockingbird, but we don't get that confirmed in the way that I was hoping. It does turn out that the watch was hers, of course, when she worked for S.H.I.E.L.D. and even had their insignia as well as her agent number from the comics, Agent 19. Uh, the one thing that this does allow technically, by not saying that her name is Morse or Mockingbird or anything, is it leaves room for the agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Genevieve Padalecki to still be a part of the sacred timeline, as we're calling it. Um, she just wouldn't have had the designation 19, so Miss Martin would have 19, but then she wouldn't be Mockingbird, which takes away some of the fun, so we may never have a real answer to that. It's just, this is the best we're gonna get. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie, that's extremely disappointing. Uh, speaking of disappointing, the post credit scene was one of my least favorite things I have ever watched, I think. I did not enjoy it. It was a full number from the Rogers musical to beginning to end. All I have to say about the composition and the writing of this supposed Broadway-level performance was that it is not Broadway-level. <laughs> It was pretty bad, in my opinion. I'm sure there are people who enjoyed it, but I was assuredly not one of them. Having the Rogers musical in the universe of the MCU, fine, that makes sense. People are nostalgic and dumb. But again, it's also kind of like having a musical about 9-11. I, you know how many people probably died in the Battle of New York? That, I, that, it's kind of like having a musical about 9-11. <laughs> 
I did not like the scene is my point here. Um, but I am sure that they did it because they probably spent a ridiculous amount of money getting a single entire Broadway number into the scene. And you only see bits and pieces of it in the show. So they wanted to make sure they got their money's worth on this investment, I guess. Um, but however, I really don't think it's a good sign that they seem to be hardcore fumbling the end credit scenes for people. They established for a long time now that these scenes are often the biggest reveals of the movie um, leading into the next project or are otherwise generally excitement making for the coming movies. But this was honestly pretty cringy to see the whole display of and the No Way Home single end credit scene that they had was also a total write-off. So fumbling. Um, and that's all I got for Hawkeye. It's, it was fine. It was fine. I'm more excited to see what comes next, though. I think that's where I landed at. The last thing that we are going to cover today for this week's main episode is the Marvel Comics 2022 solicitations. We have a good number of things that are kicking off with number ones in March, because these are the March solicitations. Uh, we have some things that are continuing, very interestingly. We have some things that are ending. So let's go ahead and get to it here, starting off with Immortal X-Men number one. We've talked a little bit about Immortal X-Men number one when they first announced it about two or three weeks ago. This is going to be written by Karen Gillan with art by Lucas Wernick. We have covers for the series coming from Mark Brooks, but we have variants for issue one coming from Tom Muller, Todd Nock, Phil Noto, Lionel Francis Yu, Lucas Wernick, Peach Ramogo, and Oscar Vega. Oh, and Emanuela Lupacino. Look at that. What it says here is, In the Quiet Council, no one can hear you scream. The Quiet Council rules the Krakoan Age, for better or for worse. Now, shaken by Inferno and the ex-lives, ex-death of Wolverine, which I'm not reading, by the way, they strive to hold together no matter how much they want to tear each other apart. Writer Karen Gillan returns to the world of X with artist Lucas Wernick to bring us all into the room where it happens. It being the most powerful people on Earth deciding the fate of the whole planet. Prepare for sinister secrets to be revealed and learn that some secrets are more sinister than others. Obviously, phrasing is important. Sinister being a character who is on the Quiet Council, we have no doubt that he will be a villain again. <laughs> He's always kind of been a villain, but we're getting back to basics. Strange number one is another series that I talked about. Uh, a good amount on the last episode. This is about Clea being the new Sorcerer Supreme. This is about by Jed McKay with art by Marcelo Fiera, cover by Bjorn Barnes. We have variants by J. Scott Campbell, J. Scott Campbell, Mahmoud Asrar, Frank Brunner, which is actually pretty cool because he was a guy who did the early 70s Clea comic cover, oh, early 70s Doctor Strange covers, and a lot of them had Clea on him. He clearly had a thing for Clea based on his art. So it's cool that he's got a hidden gem variant coming for this first issue of her first ever solo series. We have a Carnage Forever cover coming from TBA. Uh, also a variant by Scotty Young. What it says for the series is, A new Sorcerer Supreme rises. Doctor Strange is dead and a new Sorcerer Supreme has taken the title, or should we say Sorceress. Haunted by her recently returned memories, Cleo longs to bring Stephen Strange back from the dead. But when a mysterious group attacks the magical realm, Cleo must rise to the duties of Sorcerer Supreme, for she is now the sole protector of Earth against the magical threats. 
Don't miss the twists and turns as Jen McKay continues the story from Death of Doctor Strange with artist Marcelo Fiera. Um, and just as a reminder, I will be posting a Clea once over podcast um, the week that the final issue of Death of Doctor Strange premieres in January. We have What If Miles Morales number one of five. This is written by Cody Ziegler with art by Paco Medina. They have covers by Sarah Pacelli. And this number one has covers by Ivan Coelho, Kare Andrews, Humberto Ramos, Taryn Clark, and Brian Stelfries. What it says is friendly neighborhood Captain America. What if Miles Morales had never been bitten by a genetically enhanced spider and become Spider-Man? What if instead the U.S. government recruited, trained, and granted him invincible powers with the super soldier's incredible powers with the super soldier serum? What makes Miles a hero no matter the circumstances, no matter the reality? And are there other superheroes the many Miles of the multiverse might have become instead of Spidey? This is basically going to be an exploration of Miles across the multiverse. Boy, that's a tongue twister. And I am here for it. Punisher number one, I talked about also last week, coming from Jason Aaron with art by Jesus Saiz and Paul Azteca. We have covers by Jesus Saiz with variants for the first issue by Jen Bartel, Goran Parlov, John Romita Jr., Hernanda Souza, Benjamin Sue, Alex Ross, and Alex Ross. It's going to be a spoiler cover too, but they're not telling us what that is yet, of course. It says, Born of tragedy, devoted to war, unstoppable in his rage. As the Punisher, Frank Castle has become the most accomplished killer in the world has ever seen. Now it's time for him to face his true destiny. What shocking secret from Frank's past will convince him to take the reins of Marvel's most notorious clan of assassins? And once Frank becomes the warlord of the deadly ninjas of the hand, will it also mean an end to the, for the Punisher, or a whole new bloody beginning? Join the superstar team of writer Jason Aaron and artist Jesus Saiz and Paul Azateca, Azaceta for an epic exploration of the dark and violent past and inevitable future of one of Marvel's most iconic characters. Carnage number one comes from Ram V and Francesco Mana with a cover by Kendrick Kunkalim. We also have variants by Simone Bianchi, Brian Hitch, Dan Panosian, Ron Lim, Paolo Sequeira, Mark Bagley, and Lionel Francis Yu. Honestly, not very fond of Carnage, so we're going to skip that solicit. Sorry, not sorry. Demon Days, Peach Ramoko's Demon Days Blood Feud number one, written and drawn by Peach Ramoko. Uh, with variants by Peach Moko, Eddie Grenot, Bjorn Barunes, Mike Del Mundo, Bill Sinkevich, Scotty Young, and of course, Guri Hero. It says it is the final chapter of the Demon Days saga. At the end of the road, Mariko Yashida finally meets the one she's been hunting the one who's been hunting her, a silver clad swordswoman named Ogin, who's also Mariko's sister. Will Mariko have to cross blades with her own flesh and blood, or will Ogin's giant green bodyguard smash Mariko to pieces first? The stakes are high and the emotions are higher in this epic conclusion to the Demon Day saga by Stormbreaker Peach Momoko. X-Men Unlimited Latitude number one comes from Jonathan Hickman and yes, Jonathan Hickman and Declan Shelby. We've got covers by Mike Henderson, uh, Betsy Cola, Emma Lupacino, and it says when A manages to manages a covert infiltration of the sword station and kidnaps three mutants. It's up to take one giant leap for man and get them back. From the vacuum of space to the dropping guts of an evil supercomputer 
Drooping Guts. Logan will stop in nothing to save his friends. Collecting the first four chapters of the hit Marvel Infinity comic by head of X Jonathan Hickman and superstar Declan Shelby for the first time in print. So these have already come out. I was hoping maybe Hickman would be, still be here, but he's not. <laughs> Captain Carter, number one of five, by Jamie McKelvey and Marika Cresta. We have covers by Jamie McKelvey, Jane McKelvey, Todd Knox, Sarah Pacelli, Declan Chevley, Declan Shavley. Wow, I can't talk. Jen Bartell and an animation variant that they have not announced yet. It says a reality where Agent Peggy Carter took the super soldier serum is turned upside down when the, when the World War II hero is pulled from the ice where she was lost in action decades before. Peggy struggles to find her footing in a modern world that's gotten a lot more complicated. Cities are louder, technology is smarter, and enemies wear friendly faces. Everyone with an agenda wants Captain Carter on their side, but what does Peggy want? And will, and will she have time to figure it out when mysterious forces are already gunning for her? Prolific comics creator and designer Jamie McKelvey, yes, he did design the Captain Marvel costume, teams with rising star Marika Cresta to tell an unforgettable Captain Mar Carvel Carter story for a modern age. Fuh. Captain Carter story for a modern age. Hui. Women of Marvel number one, which really should be Women of Marvel number two, because they did one last year as well. This is by Charlie Jane Anders, Mirka Andolfo, Jordi Belair, Rihanna Pratchett, Pretty Shibar, and more. With art by Zoe Thorogood, Jen Bartel, Marguerite Savage, and more. We have covers by Mirka Andolfo, Hernanda Souza, Audrey Mock, Lauren A. Brown, and Ashley Witter. The talented women creators who have made Marvel the powerhouse that it is take on fun, take on fan favorite female characters within the Marvel universe. From seasoned veterans to up and coming talent, this cast of writers and artists gives their own spin on beloved heroines, showing the fire, mystery, and grace and joy that makes them phenomenal women. With superstar creators Charlie Jane Anders, Mirka Andolfo, Jordi Belair, and many more, this issue is another must-have from the Voices Pools. This is actually Marvel, Women of Marvel number two, and they couldn't even get their own thing right. Hulk Grand Design Monster number one is a flashback story unfurling the saga of the Incredible Hulk from the very beginning to the present by Jim Rugg, Art and Writing. Uh, we have covers by Peter Moko, Ed Piscor, and Marcos Martin. We have two flashback series starting in March. The first is Wolverine Patch, one of five, by Larry Hama and Andrea DeVito. And we have Venom Lethal, Lethal Protector, one of five, by David Michelin and Yvonne Fiorelli. Fiorelli. Four things that are continuing through March. We have Eternals number 10 by Kieran Gillen and Asad Rubik. We have Star Wars The Halcyon Legacy, which is a basically anthology series about things that happened on this particular Halcyon ship. This issue three will have stories about Anakin and Padme uh, colliding with Asajj Ventress. And I think that sounds super, super awesome. Spider-Gwen, the Gwenverse, has issue two of five with covers by David Nakayama, Ryan Gonzalez, and Peach Momoko. We have a Gwen Stacy who is corrupting the world, Ghost Spider, Thor Gwen, Super Soldier, Captain America Gwen, 
and then another Gwen Stacy that we're going to be introduced to in that issue. Silk number three from Emily Kin and Takeshi Miyazawa has covers by Inyuk Lee, Dyke Ruan, and again, Inyuk Lee. Uh, She-Hulk number three is by Rainbow Roll and Rohe Antonio, with covers by Jen Bartel, Jan Bazaldua, Ish, and Skan. What it says for this issue, because I'm a big fan, it says Jack of Hearts is back and it's up to She-Hulk to help him figure out why. But Jack may be the key to figuring out something else that has been chasing her since 1989. In the meantime, a smashing return, guest stars, and the funniest, sexiest book on the stands. Captain Marvel 37 was pushed back a month. We've already talked about the solicitation from Kelly Thompson and Julios Ota, covered by R.B. Silva and Peach Momoko and Rian Gonzalez. It says, after the brutal fight in Last of the Marvels, Carol Danvers deserves a break, and so does fellow Marvel Monica Rambeau. But when redacted, loose on Earth, the heroes have no time to breathe. There's no telling what this new force in the universe will do next. A perfect jumping on point for the longest Captain Marvel run yet. We also have Spider-Woman number 21 by Carla Pacheco and Perry Perez. Devil's Reign 5 of 6 and Six of Six by Chip Zarsky and Marco Cicchetto. Uh Devil's Reign X-Men, Three of Three by Gary Duggan and Phil Noto. Daredevil, Woman Without Fear, and Three of Three by Chip Zarsky and Raphael Delatorre. Black Widow, number 15 by Kelly Thompson and Elena Casagrande. Thor, 23 by Donny Cates and Nick Klein. And then we have an X-Horse Annual by Nadia Shamus. Excellent, number two, Sabretooth, number two, Dark Ages, Six of Six. Hawkeye Kate Bishop 505 and the short-lived Amazing Spider-Man Beyond era is coming to an end in March as well. And that wraps up this week's episode of Sensational She Geek Live from Yancey Street. The next episode will be, hopefully in the next few days, the No Way Home cast featuring the He Geek, aka my husband. And then Saturday the 1st, we are going to be posting also Best in Comics 2021. And then on Monday the 3rd, we have episode 47, including the Book of Boba drop, comic picks, comic polls, whatever news pops up between now and then, and anything else I feel is relevant to discuss on the podcast. Thank you very much for listening once again to whatever portion of the podcast you were able to listen to. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please do uh, that where you can. Social media is usually the place. Um, it is officially winter now. We uh, ran into winter just after the episode last week. Um, so try and focus on the change in your life, the light coming through to brighten up the dark. Things will end, but other things will always begin in its place. That goes for comics, that goes for life, that goes for sweaty MCU, DCU stuff, you know, whatever it is you're into, life will go on. So have a great week. I hope the new year does okay for you and by the time I see you next for a regular episode on the third I hope your life has settled nicely already into 2022 and the year is looking better than this one has no matter how your 2021 has been I hope 2022 does well for you but that all being said uh, I would also like to remind you that nothing magically happens on December 31st at midnight any change that you would like to see in your life you must put forth that effort yourself so with all that being said have an excellent new year hope to see you soon